quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. After 24 years of trying his hardest, Vladimir Putin has finally become a wanted international war criminal. The lead starts right now. The International Criminal Court issuing an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin today. The Russian president and another top official are accused of committing war crimes by deporting Ukrainian children to Russia. Then, could this furry mammal be responsible for the COVID pandemic? New data from a wet market in China links the virus to raccoon dogs, raising new questions if animals sold at the market were at the origin of the global pandemic and not a lab leak. Plus, Are you sick of getting annoying spam texts? The new rules that will force phone companies to crack down on those robo-texts blowing up your phone. Welcome to The Lean. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead and an arrest warrant issued for Vladimir Putin this afternoon. The Kremlin is trying to dismiss the warrant for the Russian president issued by the International Criminal Court earlier today. The ICC alleging that Putin... And his commissioner for children's rights, Maria Lvova Bilova, forcibly detained thousands of Ukrainian kids and then deported them to Russia. Putin's spokesman called the warrants, quote, outrageous and unacceptable. And they are, these warrants, likely symbolic, as Putin would either have to be handed over by the Kremlin, which he controls with an iron fist, or arrested outside of Russia to face trial, but top Ukrainian officials are applauding the move, with one saying, quote, the wheels of justice are turning, unquote. Let's bring in CNN's Matthew Chance and Clarissa Ward. Clarissa is at The Hague in the Netherlands, where the ICC meets. And Clarissa, you spoke with the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court about these warrants. What did he have to say? Well, understandably, I think, Jake, he is feeling very excited about this moment. This has been months of investigating several trips to Ukraine, uh, and he really feels that this is hugely historic, symbolic, important. It's the first time, according to uh, according to Mr. Khan, the chief prosecutor, that an acting head of state from a member of the General Security uh, Council has actually been issued with an arrest warrant. Take a look at what he had to t- say. Do you believe it's possible that one day we will see President Vladimir Putin in the dock? I think those that think it's impossible um, fail to understand history because the major Nazi war criminals, Milosevic, Kradic, Miladic, former President Charles Taylor, uh, Jean Cabanda from Rwanda, Hissen Habri, all of them were 
mighty, powerful individuals, and yet they found themselves in courtrooms whose conduct was being adjudicated over by independent judges. Uh, and that also gives cause for hope that uh, the law can, with however, however difficult it may be, the law can um, be supreme. So is the message today that nobody is above the law? I think the message must be that basic principles of humanity bind everybody. And nobody should feel they have a free pass. Nobody f can f should feel they can act with abandon. And that definitely nobody should feel that they can act uh, and commit genocide or crimes against humanity, war crimes, with impunity. Now, Jake, one of the other things that Mr. Khan was, uh, you know, felt victorious about was the speed with which they have moved along with these investigations. In the past, the ICC has often been accused of being a very sort of slow-moving instrument. Uh, this time, though, investigations began within a month of the war starting, and he's hoping that this is sort of just the beginning, the first step in a journey, and that you'll continue to see more investigations, not just in Ukraine, but worldwide. The hope is to try to force the wheels of justice to turn more quickly, Jake. Matthew, the, the Kremlin called the warrants outrageous, but does the Kremlin deny taking these Ukrainian children? Uh, no, uh, it doesn't. Uh, in fact, it, it seems to be pretty proud of the fact that so many children from the war zone in Ukraine uh, have been have been taken into the Russian Federation. It sells it domestically as an act of mercy to rescue these unwanted orphans, as it characterizes them, who have been abandoned by the authorities in Kiev and bring them into the safe, welcoming arms um, of the Russian Federation. Vladimir Putin, uh, the Russian president, his, 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 uh, his children's rights commissioner, uh, uh, Maria Lvova-Belova, uh, have spoken about it recently on Russian television. They talk about how you know, members of these, uh, this group of children have been adopted. Uh, uh, Belova herself has apparently adopted one of the children from uh, the, the city, the Ukrainian city of, of Mariupol. Uh, she's spoken in the past about how a lot of these children were um, had to be re-educated uh, because they were saying negative things about Russia and singing the Ukrainian national anthem. But, you know, with re-education, they developed a love uh, for the country. So it's quite it's quite chilling stuff. And all this, remember, uh, as many of these children still have living parents who are in Ukraine who, of course, desperately want them back. It's really twisted, really sick. Clarissa, what do we know about uh, another possible ICC investigation into Russian actions against Ukraine? Certainly there's no shortage of potential other war crimes that Putin and others could be charged with. This is something we asked about. Why this specific case? Why the deported children? And I think, you know, as Matthew just outlined there, it's, it's low-hanging fruit, in a sense, because the Russians have not really tried to hide it. But it is by no means the only line of investigation uh, that they're pursuing. Uh, Karim Khan has called the whole of Ukraine as basically a crime scene. Uh, he has looked into the massacre in Bucha. Obviously, they are also looking into things like what happened in Mariupol when the theater where civilians were sheltering uh, were killed in airstrikes and, and many others. The other thing that's interesting, though, is that the nature of the charges could change. So at this point, this arrest warrant is for war crimes. But under the Rome statute, uh, under the ICC, that could potentially change 
even to something like crimes against humanity or potentially even genocide because technically the forced deportation of children falls under the rubric of both of those charges as well. So this is a way to get your foot in the door and start the sort of investigation and the proceedings, but there is a lot of road to run in terms of developing those and other investigations as well, Jake. And Matthew, does this arrest warrant restrict where Putin could travel in the future, such as to a G20 uh, meeting or the United Nations General Assembly in Manhattan? Um, well, I mean, it depends on, on where on where Putin chooses to go, where he considers going, and what the attitude of those countries would be. There are, I think, 123 countries that are signatories to the International Criminal Court, signatories to the Rome Statute, the founding act uh, of the ICC. And each of those countries is legally abound uh, to arrest sort of people who have been indicted uh, by the organization. But, you know, Russia isn't one of them, for instance. And so Russia does, isn't legally bound uh, to send uh, Vladimir Putin to the court. You mentioned the G20. The next one's going to be held in India. India isn't a signatory either. And so presumably Putin could go there too. Uh, and the UN General Assembly in the United States, in New York, the United States isn't even a signatory uh, of the ICC. And so you know, while Putin's options are limited, it is possible for him to navigate this geographically. But you know, morally, it's going to be very hard for any country now to sit at the same table, to shake the hand, to meet face to face with uh, a Russian president who has been indicted uh, for this kind of terrible war crime. All right. Uh, Matthew Chance and Clarissa Ward, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And you can watch Clarissa's full interview with the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. That will be at tonight at 8 Eastern, uh, only here on CNN. Uh, let's talk more about this with former U.S. Ambassador for War Crimes Issues, David Sheffer. He was the first person to ever hold that position. And we also have with us the former Deputy Director of National Intelligence, uh, Beth Sanner. Thanks to both of you for being here. Really appreciate it. Let's start with this uh, arrest warrant. Uh, do you think it's likely that Putin will actually ever stand trial in The Hague or face any consequences because of this? It's possible. And it's possible because first, this is the first step towards delegitimizing him on a legal scale, even before his own people. Other top leaders who have been indicted, whether by the war crimes tribunals of the 1990s or even by the International Criminal Court, ultimately lost their authority, even domestically. And they then stand the risk of standing trial before any of these tribunals once that happens. I don't think we should assume that Vladimir Putin is in power for the next 10 to 15 or 20 years in Russia. At some point, he'll lose that power. And when he does, I think in part prompted by this, uh, this arrest warrant against him, he'll be subject to the possibility of arrest. That's also true even if he travels to India or Pakistan or China or North Korea it's not that he will be immediately arrested, but there will be a tremendous amount of pressure put on those governments, particularly India, for example, not to cater to him. Because I would suspect that some government leaders from the G20 will actually boycott the G20 summit if, if Mr. Putin indeed is going to be present there. They cannot, as, as, as was stated in your report, they cannot literally sit at a table and negotiate with an indicted fugitive of the International Criminal uh, Court or, or engage in diplomatic discussions without a tremendous amount of blowback if they do so. Do you agree? Do you think this will further isolate uh, Putin? 
Well, if you look at the uh, autocrats that he hangs around with right now, none of these people are signatories. Um, So, you know, Iran, North Korea, China, and even these parties that are kind of the in-between parties like India. So, you know, in some ways, I think that it almost geopolitically solidifies even more the divisions that we're seeing in our world. You know, countries that agree and countries that don't agree. Even though the U.S. isn't a signatory, we support this sort of the sort of indictment, right, morally. So I do think that there's this division. Um, you know, but ultimately, this just, to me, reinforces the, you know, let me count the ways of how Putin sees this war as an existential war. Yeah. You know? Because mm. if he loses, right. now, you know, the consequences are much higher. So in a way, um, this might make him dig in even more, even, even though, I mean, it's hard to imagine him digging even <laughs> right. in more. But, but, you know, historically, that doesn't really play out. Okay. But once these individuals are actually indicted, it's not as if they're emboldened. They actually start to lose their authority and their political clout, and they achieve international pariah status. Uh, this, this, uh, experience, we experienced this in the 1990s and the early 2000s. Once these leaders are indicted, they are not strengthened, uh, and they don't dig in. They actually start to draw back. Although we should know that uh, Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping is traveling to Moscow next week to meet with Putin. Uh, do you think that this could have changed that or affect that at all? Not no. at all. And so, yeah. so I agree completely with David, but I also think that like, we're kind of in a different geopolitical moment now where you know, what did the foreign ministry of China say about this visit coming up? He, he said... This is a moment where we are two strong powers. We are members, Russia and China, of the U.N. Security Council. And this meeting has so much more strategic value than about our bilateral relationship. This is about creating an alternative world order. And to me, you know, unfortunately, I don't think China is going to be swayed by any of this. And and both of these leaders have known for a long time that ultimately Mr. Putin would be indicted. So it's not as if this is a surprise. They knew this was coming. All right, David Sheffer and Beth Sander, thanks to both of you for your expertise. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Coming up, a judge rules against Donald Trump. And now his attorney has to testify in the classified documents investigation. And wild protests erupt in Paris after the government tries to raise the retirement age by two years. We're going to go live to the streets of Paris filled with protesters and fires and Giant barricades. Stay with us. In our political lead, a significant ruling in the special counsel investigation of Donald Trump's alleged mishandling of classified documents. A source telling CNN that a federal judge has ordered one of Mr. Trump's attorneys to provide additional grand jury testimony. Let's bring in CNN's Jessica Schneider. Uh, Who is this attorney? And tell us why the order for more testimony could be important. Yeah, this is a big boost to special counsel Jack Smith's classified documents investigation because, Jake, this involves Trump's top attorney, Evan Corcoran. And this is the court ordering Corcoran to provide additional testimony related to that probe into the mishandling of classified documents and possible obstruction by the former president or his top aides. So to remind viewers, Corcoran is the attorney who drafted a statement in June, and that statement said that Trump's team had done this diligent search of Mar-a-Lago and that there was no no 
remaining classified material there. When in fact, of course, it was weeks later that the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago and found hundreds of government records, including classified material. So Corcoran was called before the grand jury back in January. And at the time, he was asked about what happened in the lead up to that FBI search. But he did decline to answer some of the questioning, and he cited attorney-client privilege. Well, almost immediately, DOJ challenged that, and they said that Corcoran's discussions with former President Trump, it could have been part of an attempt to plan a crime, namely obstruction, and that really because of that, because of that crime fraud exception, Corcoran should be compelled to testify. So that is exactly what happened today. The outgoing chief judge of the federal court here in D.C., they switched positions after today. She ordered that Trump's top attorney, Evan Corcoran, has to testify now to the grand jury. And this is significant because it's about his conversations, his planning with the former president, all surrounding the entire classified document situation, Jake. So this really will be key information for the special counsel to obtain in this ongoing probe of the classified documents case. And it really could prove to be this pivotal moment because Evan Corcoran will be forced to disclose some of his conversations with the former president could be key to the special counsel's case here. Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. In our money lead, U.S. markets closing down more than 384 points today as anxiety and uncertainty continue even after 11 of America's biggest banks pledged $30 billion to stop First Republic Bank from being the next victim of all this banking turmoil. CNN's Rahel Solomon joins us now to talk about this. Rahel, why are we seeing this reaction from investors? I thought that they had been reassured uh, by the move by the big banks to, to help this one in San Francisco. Well, Jake, it seems like investors feel like that this may not be enough. There are some questions about whether all of this intervention, including the 11 banks banding together, as you pointed out, also what we saw on Sunday in terms of the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department providing that lifeline, uh, that backstop there with that line of credit, whether that will ultimately be enough. I mean, even, for example, with First Republic, despite that cash infusion that it received from those 11 banks, despite the fact that it announced yesterday that it is borrowing more than $100 billion from the Federal Reserve, it also announced that it's cutting its dividend, which suggests that it's in a position where it still feels like it needs to shore up cash, that it still feels like that it could be having some financial difficulties. So investors don't like that. But it is also the larger confidence that we're dealing with in the banking system, a larger erosion of trust, as one economist said on our air earlier today. And Jake, as you know, I mean, you think about erosion of trust, even in personal relationships, it takes some time to rebuild that trust. And so I think the question now is, how long is this ultimately going to take and how much damage that lack of trust could really create in the banking system? And Rahel, what does all this stress on smaller banks, what does it mean for our viewers? What does it mean for the American people? Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I think it's really important to point out that uh, these smaller and medium-sized banks are essentially banks that have $250 billion in assets or less. These are major sources of lending. Take a look. This coming from Goldman Sachs, pointing out that these small and medium-sized banks, Jake, they're responsible for 45% of consumer lending, 60% of residential real estate lending. So, Jake, in an environment like we find ourselves in now, you have to imagine banks are going to become more risk averse. They're going to become a bit more careful about lending, that they might tighten lending standards. And what that means for uh, viewers, what that means for all of us is that it essentially becomes harder to borrow. It might be harder to get a car loan. If you're a small business, it might be harder to get a loan. So it will have all sorts of implications in terms of the larger economy. Goldman Sachs in that same note, Jake, saying that smaller banks that are sitting on large amounts of deposits that aren't FDIC insured, Listen to this. We could see a pullback in lending from 15 percent to 40 percent. So this will certainly have implications. The question is ultimately how significant. 
The Fed, of course, has a big decision to make next week. Have you seen any clues as to whether they are going to hike interest rates again or not? Well, the market certainly seems to think at this point we are in for another rate hike of a quarter of a percent. But, Jake, a lot can change in a week, right? Because a week ago, before SVB fell, the expectation was for about half a percent of a rate hike. The question now is, can the Fed essentially prove that it can walk and talk at the same time, right? Uh, Mohamed Alarian, a very prominent economist, telling our, economist, our, our colleague, Jake Zane Asher, earlier today, the Fed has to be very clear about keeping its eye on the ball in terms of fighting inflation. So the expectation moving forward now is half a percent. That we'll hear from the Fed on Wednesday. A lot can change between now and then, though. All right, Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. Coming up, could this mammal we're showing you right here, it's called a raccoon dog, could this be one of the culprits culprits behind the global COVID pandemic? Coming up, the new data that is raising some new questions about the origins of the disease. In our health lead, a new analysis suggests that the origins of the COVID pandemic may may be linked to raccoon dogs. And if you've never heard of raccoon dogs, well, they've never heard of you either. But this is it. This is what it is. It's a mammal that aligns more closely with raccoons than with dogs. International scientists examined previously unavailable genetic samples taken from a Wuhan market early in the pandemic where raccoon dogs were known to be traded. The genetic samples were quietly posted on a data-sharing platform in January, then taken down earlier this month, after international scientists began asking Chinese researchers about it. Let's bring in Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, obviously it's been difficult to determine COVID's origin, especially because of the lack of transparency from Chinese officials. What can we learn from this new data? And bottom line, are we ever going to know for certain where COVID really came from? Well, uh, two, two questions there. First of all, I, I think that this, this new data is really interesting, but it's, it's not conclusive. Can we ever learn? I think what this new data shows us more than anything is that there is data out there that could help answer this question. That data has been very hard to come by because of the opaqueness, the opacity from the Chinese government. Jake, this is like a scientific drama. I mean, the story. So there's these samples taken in March of 2020. They're intermittently made available for researchers to look at. Mostly they say, hey, yeah, look, we've looked at these samples taken from this Wunan seafood market. And there's really no evidence of anything other than there was COVID there, like there was in a lot of places in Wuhan. All of a sudden, just this past week, the samples show up on a server again. And you got these researchers around the country who are constantly hitting refresh to see if there's any new data on these servers. And they say, well, yeah, there, this new data showed up. So they quickly downloaded it. And what they found was this. In samples that had previously been positive for COVID-19, they also saw that there was the presence of this animal DNA in those samples as well. That animal, as you pointed out, the raccoon dog, a type of uh, uh, animal that is known to be able to carry coronaviruses and possibly transmit them. So that's what we know now, that there was animal DNA, COVID DNA intermixed within the Wunan seafood market in March of 2020. It does, it's not a silver bullet, it doesn't answer this for sure, but it, it, because what you'd need to know that would be an actual infected animal. This is not an actual infected animal. You'd also need to know a timeline, meaning is it possible humans could have still brought the virus to the market and the raccoon dogs got infected by humans? It's possible. So it's really interesting, but not definitive. And I'll just leave you with this as well, Jake. You know, you may say, well, why is this data so hard to come by? Remember the, the sort of narrative from the Chinese government right now is that COVID 
they say originated in the United States, in Maryland, at an army lab. So there's lots of reasons that this data, I think, has been sort of hidden or at least suppressed. That's insane. (laughs) All right. um, Well, let's turn to the current state of COVID in the United States, because today uh, fewer than one percent of counties in the United States have a high COVID community level. So what does that tell us? Well, I think it, it's, it's, a, it's good news, obviously, if you look at that map and say, OK, let's just look at COVID levels around the country. Uh, when you look at it, it's less than 1%. What that's reflective of is how much COVID is out there, but also how much of an impact it's making on society, because it, it takes into account hospitalizations. So when you take hospitalizations and COVID into account, it's a pretty good looking map. If you look at another map that just looks at transmission of COVID, you still see that there's a lot of COVID out there. There's still a lot of people who are probably getting exposed to the virus, but seemingly getting more minor illness uh, as a result of, I think, vaccinations and also the amount of uh, infection-acquired immunity that's out there. So we're we're starting to live with it. We've been talking, what does living with COVID look like? It probably looks like the picture we're starting to see now. And let's turn to a a different topic, um, because Sanjay, in addition to both of us being huge Dave Matthews fans, we both are parents of teen girls. Um, And in your latest podcast, you explore not Dave Matthews, but you explore teen girls and what's known as the selfie effect, the impact that social media can have on one's mood and psychological health, which is not confined just to teen girls, I should note. But, But what can you tell us about this phenomenon? Yeah, first of all, I tell you, I think about my girls a lot. I think about Alice a lot when doing these podcasts because it's a big issue, just social media and devices. Selfie effect is is a a term that was coined by Professor Sinclair McBride, basically saying, hey, we take all these selfies, but we're now in a position technologically where we look at selfies and then rapidly compare them to these heavily filtered, photoshopped images of amazing looking people. And what happens when you're constantly comparing yourself real time very quickly the selfie effect takes place, makes you feel inadequate, creates feelings that, uh, where you're, you're finding less joy in your own appearance, in your own accomplishments and things like that. We've sort of known that for some time. I mean, when we were growing up, Jake, there was no devices in social media, but there were magazines, you know, where you had, you know, sort of unrealistic uh, models and stuff on the covers. The difference now is the abundance of these images and the persistence of these images. Kids are carrying these around on their phones all the time. And it is teen girls that are probably most affected. Filters and those things are not going away, Jake. But what I think is interesting is when you talk to the makers of these filters and you say, what is really going on here? What are those filters supposed to be doing? Is there a larger problem? Listen to how they, listen to what their concerns are. A lot of the filters kind of have a very Eurocentric lens. So it would be great if they did not make people's skin colors lighter or change the shape of their noses or change how big their eyes are or do things that make them more towards a certain standard of beauty that may not be um, from the the cultural background that they're from, right? Like, I think that would be really clutch. Like, it would be nice if, like, when you put a filter on, it said, you're beautiful as you are, but you can play with this if you want, right? Like, it's it's just a tool. It's just a thing that is here. But also, this picture of you without the filter is also really cool. The point, Jake, which I found fascinating, I hadn't thought about it, was that filters may be creating these more conformed looks, lightening the skin, changing the morphological features of the face, trying to create a uniformity, which, you know, I mean, that's that's a thing in society, which, you know, a, a lot of people are very concerned about. So I tell Alice, I tell my girl, you know, you're beautiful as you are. I think the filters and those things are here to stay, but I think we have to be aware of these larger issues. 
Yeah. Important stuff. And you can listen to Dr. Sanjay Gupta's awesome podcast. It's called Chasing Life. Wherever you get your podcasts, check it out. Thanks, Sanjay. Turning now to our politics lead, since the start of the year, dozens of bills seeking to restrict access uh, to the kinds of health care that transgender kids and transgender adults want have been introduced around the country. In Nebraska, one state senator, a Democrat, has been filibustering for three weeks to, to block an effort from a conservative colleague. Uh, Michaela Kavanaugh, a state senator, vowed to burn the session to the ground over Republican legislation that would ban some of these medical treatments for uh, transgender individuals under the age of 19. This legislature collectively decides that legislating hate against children is our priority, then I am going to make it painful, painful for everyone. Nebraska State Senator Michaela Kavanaugh joins us now. So, Senator, why are you pausing your filibuster? Um, well, I would say it was a very mini pause. <laughs> so on um, Wednesday evening, I met with the speaker and we agreed that the bill that I have been filibustering against, LB 574, the anti-transgender uh, affirming care for children, uh, is going to be scheduled first thing next week. It does not have the votes to pass. And so I still have to filibuster it. So I still go on week four of filibustering, but I did take yesterday morning off of filibustering uh, for an hour and a half. So I, it was a short pause. I'll be back at filibustering for next week. It'll be a four weeks of filibustering. And assuming that the trans bill fails, the anti-affirming uh, care bill fails uh, on cloture, then hopefully we as a legislature can move forward and, and stop trying to legislate hate. What uh, has been the feedback from your colleagues? I've seen a lot of articles uh, from Nebraska of, of your colleagues complaining that you've slowed business down. Yeah, they're frustrated, um, which was the intention. I wanted them to be frustrated. I wanted them to be frustrated enough to realize that this should not be a priority in the state. So the state senator, Kathleen, is it Kataf? I don't know how to pronounce it. Kataf? Kataf. Um, she introduced the bill and she says, quote, uh, Senator Kavanaugh, that's you, your comments, uh, that she doesn't care if nothing gets done reflects a total disregard for the citizens of Nebraska. By postponing the debate through the filibuster, Senator Kavanaugh has thrown away our ability to hear bills on many topic topics. It's been a selfish calculation to gain attention cloaked in the insincere guise of defending gender dysphoric youth at the expense of our constituents, unquote. So what's your response to her? Um. What I am doing is not selfish. I'm not doing this for myself. It would be much easier to do literally anything other than what I'm doing. I'm doing this to protect the children of Nebraska. The most vulnerable children are trans youth who need to have people, especially the adults in the room, standing up for them and standing up for their rights. And I would say that what she's doing is completely inappropriate and outside the scope of what our government should be doing. Our government should not be legislating away parental rights and medical decision-making. And as someone who vehemently opposed vaccines, I think that it is really inappropriate for her to be pushing something like this. State Senator Michaela Kavanaugh, thank you so much. And for our viewers, if you or someone you know needs help, please call or text 988, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Coming up, a fresh baguette, some good French wine, piles of burning trash. What's behind the enormous protests in Paris right now? 
In our world lead, the government of French President Emmanuel Macron has done the unthinkable. They raised the retirement age in France from 62 to 64. This comes despite weeks of nationwide demonstrations and strikes to protest the change, including a sanitation worker strike that, according to the mayor's office in Paris, has left that city, that magical town, littered with 10,000 tons of trash. CNN's Sam Kiley is in Paris, where protesters are on the streets right now. Sam, not to, not to be rude to our French friends, but why all the fuss? Most of us on this side of the Atlantic are scratching our heads because the retirement age here in the U.S. is between 66 and 67. Well, exactly. Uh, And in uh, other Anglo-Saxon countries like the United Kingdom, there is no kind of uh, designated uh, retirement age, certainly not a compulsory one. And that is because, or rather, Macron is trying to bring his country more into line with some of the more uh, capitalist economies, effectively, around the world. Uh, But that is flying in the face of many, many decades of culture and economy here that has resulted in in demonstrations here in the Place de la Concorde. You can see just the latter stages. The police have have shut it down pretty effectively, Jake. But at the same time, they're saying that some 4,000 people were here. There were rocks thrown. Uh, There were about a dozen arrests And it all began yesterday, essentially, in that building at the end there underneath, above the blue police lights, which is the National Assembly, because it was in that building that the Macron-appointed Prime Minister decided that she wasn't going to take his uh, proposals to the vote. She was going to use his executive powers, or the President was going to use his powers, excuse me, to ram through this legislation to force it Uh, on the people without it being sanctioned by the National Assembly. And that resulted in quite a lot of violence and demonstrations and the burning of that garbage that you referred to there that's been littering the streets here for about a week. And again, another round of demonstrations today. Smaller demonstrations, very, very heavily policed because, of course, as you can see, we're not very far from the Eiffel Tower, the top of the Champs-Élysées. This is the iconic heart of France. And on Monday... President Macron's government faces a vote of no confidence in the National Assembly, may not go against him. Even if it did, though, Jake, this is the interesting thing, a bit like the U.S. president, well, just like the U.S. president, but in different ways, he's directly elected, so his term will run on even if his government fell. There would have to be a legislative uh, general election. But that doesn't mean, ultimately, that he won't give up on this policy of trying to reform the pension structures here, which he's been trying to do, frankly, since about 2019. He says his supporters say uh, 12.5 billion euro, similar numbers uh, for uh, dollars, uh, are produced as a deficit, as a consequence, a constant deficit uh, of this uh, relatively young age that people can retire here, Jake. And and Sam, are are more protests in the works? And at the end of the day, do you think they're going to make a difference? There's very big protests and potential uh, wider strikes. We're waiting to hear about that next Thursday. Those have been organized by the unions. They were not behind today's demonstrations, which involved uh, younger people chucking rocks uh, and uh, a little bit of tear gas thrown back at them by the police. On Thursday next week, the unions, both private and public sector, are going to hold demonstrations across the country. And They may be very problematic for Macron politically because the latest polls show that about two-thirds of the country from the left and the right in this country are opposed to his reforms, Jake. 
All right, Sam Kiley in Paris, City Lights. Thanks so much. Coming up. Are you sick of that sound? That might be a new way to stop all those unwanted robotexts. Stay with us. Are you annoyed yet? Well, you're not alone. More than 18,000 consumer complaints were filed with the Federal Communications Commission last year over spam texts. And it seems as though the FCC got the message on Thursday. The agency rolled out a set of new rules for phone companies, which will require them to block texts that are, quote, highly likely to be illegal. CNN tech reporter Brian Fung joins us now. And Brian, the FCC says spam texts can be an even bigger risk to consumers than those unwanted robocalls I'm also inundated with. Why? Yeah, Jake, the issue here is all about security. So when uh, you get a spam text, it can contain a link that if you click on it, uh, could lead to malicious software being downloaded to your device, or maybe it takes you to a website where you're encouraged to enter in your uh, personal information, and, and then it gets stolen that way. That's different from a robocall uh, where you know there isn't that link that's very easily clickable or tappable. Um, but you know, speaking of robocalls, the FCC and uh, state governments have actually made a lot of progress in reducing the volume of robocalls thanks to uh, law enforcement efforts. Unfortunately, that's led to a, a surprising rise in these spam and scam texts, which brings us to these rules that the FCC is imposing now. Um, what is the FCC actually doing? Let's take a look. It's saying phone companies have to block uh, text messages from numbers that are, quote, unlikely to re- transmit text messages, numbers that are invalid, unallocated, or unused, or numbers that the government says are never used for texting, not used for texting at all. Um, that's basically uh, meant to prevent texts from uh, being spoofed or being sent uh, as impersonations of government agencies. Um, That's not all. Uh, The FCC is also considering new rules, uh, future-looking rules, that would um, apply do-not-call protections to these sorts of text messages in the future. But again, that's just a proposal for now. Um, We'll see where that goes. Well, let's hope it works. Brian Funk, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up. The White House just responded to the International Criminal Court's arrest warrant issued for Vladimir Putin for alleged war crimes. Stay with us. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, troubled water. CNN gets an up-close look at the 5,000-mile-wide seaweed blob that's headed to Florida's beaches as another part of the state deals with toxic red tide. Plus, first it was the laptop could have been stolen or hacked. Now it might not even be his laptop. The ever-evolving legal defense of Hunter Biden. And leading this hour, today the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin and one of his top officials for war crimes for allegedly deporting thousands of Ukrainian children to Russia since the war began. Ukrainian President Zelensky calling this just the beginning. The White House just released a statement on the warrant saying America supports, quote, accountability for perpetrators of war crimes. Our reporters are fanned out around the world covering the story from all angles, from the White House to the Black Sea to China. But first, we're going to start with CNN's David McKenzie, who's in Kiev, Ukraine. And David, walk us through the details of these allegations specifically against Putin and one top official. 
Well, Jake, these are hugely significant. The allegations are the arrest warrant has been put forward because of the thousands of children allegedly taken from Ukraine, from Russian-occupied Ukraine and other areas into Russia against their will, deported as it were. Now, the most serious allegations are that children were taken from orphanages, from state-run areas, and then taken into Russia during this conflict and given to Russian parents, sometimes given citizens. Just several weeks ago, we reported on this show about the separation of mothers and children, and we spoke to one very distraught mother, Tatiana. Emotions overwhelmed me when Lilia left. When I realized what was happening, it terrified me. All I wanted was the best for my child at the time. And you saw those mothers travel all the way into occupied Crimea with very emotional reunions with their children. They managed to get several back because of that organization. But many still remain, Jake, in captivity. Uh, this ICC uh, arrest warrant will put the pressure onto Russia, though uh, the Russians say they have no jurisdiction over the president. But it is a very significant moment, Jake. David, the International Criminal Court does not hold trials in absentia, meaning Putin would have to be arrested before standing trial there. So what does that mean for Putin? Well, what it means is that he is hemmed into Russia, something that's already happened because of this conflict. But should the president of Russia travel now to countries which are party to uh, the International Criminal Court Treaty, now that does not include the United States, he would be expected to be arrested by that country. But the track record on this is not great. Previous uh, heads of state like Omar al-Bashir of Sudan traveled to several countries that should have arrested them, and he did, they didn't. But it certainly further isolates the president. And though the Russian authorities and the Kremlin have rubbished these warrants, they are just the beginning, I think. You have on a daily basis prosecutors and investigators here in Ukraine looking into possible war crimes. And I think this issue, this very powerful and very sad issue of children separated from their parents still to this day, uh, is uh, maybe just the tip of the iceberg. Also important to note that this is very quick for the ICC. They are announcing these allegations and this warrant as these crimes are still allegedly being committed. That means perhaps there's some pressure for them to stop. Jake? All right, David McKenzie in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Moments ago, the Biden administration reacted officially to the ICC's arrest warrant for Putin. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is at the White House for us. And Jeremy, uh, what does the White House have to say? Well, Jake, the White House is expressing broad support for accountability as it relates to perpetrators of war crimes, but they are not expressing explicit support for this arrest warrant issued by the ICC. This is the statement from the National Security Council spokeswoman, Adrian Watson. She says, quote, there is no doubt that Russia is committing war crimes and atrocities in Ukraine, and we have been clear that these, those responsible must be held accountable. The ICC prosecutor is an independent actor and makes his own prosecutor, uh, prosecutorial decisions based on the evidence before him. We 
support accountability for perpetrators of war crimes. And as you see there, there is not explicit support for this decision by the ICC. And that is in part because the United States is not a party to the Rome Statute that established uh, the International Criminal Court. And in fact, the U.S. has a long history of rejecting the ICC's jur jurisdiction, specifically as it relates to U.S. personnel, for example, uh, investigating uh, and, and indicting uh, U.S. personnel. We know that there has been a debate inside the administration over providing support to the International Criminal Court. But interestingly, there is a growing bipartisan consensus that the administration should do exactly that. In fact, in December, Congress passed a new law that removed longstanding restrictions on the U.S. providing support to the International Criminal Court, which could pave the way for the Biden administration to provide that kind of support going forward. That still is an open question mark. In the meantime, though, Jake, administration officials have told me that they have provided support to other venues that are investigating Russian war crimes in Ukraine, notably the Ukrainian prosecutor general's office. Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond at the White House for us. Thank you. This arrest warrant comes as Chinese President Xi Jinping and Russian President Putin are set to meet in Moscow next week. CNN's Selena Wang is in Beijing for us, where China says the war in Ukraine will be a core part of their talks. Chinese leader Xi Jinping flies to Moscow next week to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin, his first visit since Russia invaded Ukraine. It's a powerful show of Xi's emboldened diplomatic ambitions and Beijing's support for Moscow. China's foreign ministry said the country's, quote, proposition boils down to one sentence, which is to urge peace and promote talks. Beijing has tried to present itself as a neutral peace broker on Ukraine, publishing a position paper last month calling for a political settlement and casting Xi as a global statesman with fresh momentum after helping Saudi Arabia and Iran broker a historic deal to restore diplomatic ties. But Western leaders are skeptical of Beijing's portrayal as a mediator. Xi and Putin declared a no-limits partnership last year when Putin visited Beijing for the Winter Olympic opening ceremony. Xi has met Putin in person 39 times since becoming China's leader, even exchanging gifts, including pandas. China has refused to condemn the invasion or even call it an invasion. Instead, Beijing has parroted the Kremlin's misinformation while blaming NATO. On China's heavily censored social media, it's all hearts and thumbs up emojis in response to the government's official post about the state visit, with comments like, hope Russia will win soon, hope there will be world peace, and long live China-Russia friendship. Beijing has also strengthened economic and military ties with Moscow by boosting trade and holding frequent military exercises. Western officials have raised concerns that China may be considering providing Russia with lethal military aid. Beijing has denied the accusation. Last month, Putin told China's top diplomat Wang Yi in Moscow that relations between their countries are reaching new milestones. The two nations, bound together by their shared vision for a new world order, no longer dominated by the West. And while Xi has spoken to Putin multiple times since the invasion, virtually and in person, he's not yet had a single phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Though Ukraine's presidential advisor says negotiations about a potential Zelensky-Xi conversation are ongoing. As she heads to Russia, the ability of China to help resolve the conflict hangs in the balance.
And Jake, the two leaders, Putin and Xi, they share this deep suspicion towards the U.S., which they believe is bent on holding China and Russia down. But at the end of the day, it's not a truly no-limits partnership. Xi only wants to help Russia as much as it helps China. Now, if Xi Jinping does end up speaking with Zelensky, that could help Beijing repair its relationship with Europe, which Xi does not want to align too closely with the U.S. on restrictions targeting China. So Xi really wants it both ways here, a relationship with Russia and to be seen as this responsible global leader. Jake. All right, Selena Wang, thank you so much. Today, the Kremlin is dismissing the ICC arrest warrant for Putin as, quote, outrageous and unacceptable. Let's bring in CNN's Fred Plykin. And Fred, do Russian officials, do they deny the charges against Putin and the top official that they forcibly remove kids, some of whom have parents, from Ukraine? Hi there, Jake. Well, they're certainly not denying that they're taking children from Ukraine. However, the way the Russians have been framing it, and you're actually right, they're, they're, they're making a pretty big deal out of it and actually putting it out there on TV, claiming that they're actually saving and helping these children. One of the interesting things that I actually just heard a couple of minutes ago, and I was messaging with a spokesman for the Kremlin, with Dmitry Peskov, and I asked him, look, do you think that this could cause problems for Vladimir Putin when he tries to travel internationally or generally internationally? And, and his response was sort of trying to brush all of this off just a couple of minutes ago. He was telling me, let's not overestimate the importance uh, that this body, meaning the International Criminal Court, has internationally. As you said, of course, the Russians are saying that they don't recognize the jurisdiction of the ICC. However, it is indeed the case that the Russians have been putting it out there on TV that children are being taken from Ukraine and are being brought to Russia. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, Vladimir Putin was on TV with the chairwoman of the Children's Commission in Russia, who today was also part of that indictment as well, who's also been indicted, where there's a warrant out for her as well. And she herself said that she had taken in as she put it, a child from Ukraine, a 15-year-old, uh, she said. The Russians are claiming that these children are orphans. The Russians are claiming that it's something that they think is a service to these children, that's helping these children. Obviously, what we're hearing from the ICC is very different to that. They are saying that this is essentially a forced deportation of, this, of these children. And, of course, speaking to some folks in Ukraine, as we have been over the last couple of weeks, the last couple of months, there are actually parents still in Ukraine whose children are still stuck in Russia at, in, in some cases with families that they don't belong to and people are having trouble getting these children back. So the Russians definitely not hiding this. However, the Russians obviously saying that there's nothing criminal in their minds, at least about this, despite the fact that you have this ICC warrant now in place, Jake. <coughs> All right, Fred Pleitkin, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. Um, Admiral Kirby, do you think President Putin will, realistically speaking, ever actually face accountability in, in front of the International Criminal Court? I think that remains to be seen, uh, Jake. Um, I don't know that we, uh, we can define what the end state's going to look like here. And as you know, the ICC, the prosecutor there, he's an independent actor, and, and they'll have to work on the evidence that, uh, that they have before them. What I can tell you is uh, a couple of things. First, we're going to stay committed to helping Ukraine as they document and analyze and preserve the kinds of evidence of the war crimes, the atrocities, the crimes against humanity that have occurred inside Ukraine at the hands of Russian forces. And, and Number two, that we are not going to back off our belief that accountability for these war crimes has got to be had, however long that takes. So theoretically speaking, if Putin were to go to the G20 or if Putin were to go to the United Nations General Assembly, um, let's just do the General Assembly one. The U.S. is not a signatory to the ICC, so the United States is not under any legal obligation uh, to detain Putin and hand him over to The Hague. 
Um, but would the U.S., if Putin comes to the United States for the U.N. General Assembly, uh, would President Biden tell law enforcement to nab him and turn him over to the ICC? We, we obviously want to see uh, anybody, any perpetrators of war crimes held to account. I, I, I'd rather not get into a hypothetical situation about whether he'll come to travel here to the United States. I find that very, very unlikely. Uh, and, uh, and, and again, I wouldn't speak for uh, the ICC and their, and their processes. What needs to, Matt, what needs to happen here uh, is that Russia needs to be held to account. The perpetrators of these war crimes have got to be held to account. And, and, and in the United States, our, our friends and partners will find uh, uh, a country that will be willing to work on that uh, for the long term. Well, what about an, uh, a country like Israel, for example, which is, I believe, also not a signatory to the ICC, uh, but one that is closely allied with the U.S., although it also is, uh, has a relationship with Russia. If Putin went to Israel for a trip or another country, like, say, like India, where I believe the next G20 is, also not a signatory to the ICC, would President Biden ask Netanyahu, ask Modi, please arrest Putin and turn him over to the ICC? Those would have to be sovereign decisions that those leaders make, Jake. That, that they're going to have to make those decisions. We want to see accountability here. We're going to keep working on that. I get it that it's their decision, but would, would President Biden ask them to do that? Yeah, I'm, not gonna, I'm just not going to speculate on a hypothetical like that, Jake. I mean, uh, we want to see the perpetrators of the war crimes here. The, at the hands of Russian forces, we want to see those responsible held to account. We're going to keep working with Ukraine to, to document uh, that evidence, to preserve that evidence, and to continue to support as we have a range of international investigations, including the one being done by the ICC. A Putin advisor says that, that Putin's going to meet with uh, his Chinese counterpart, counterpart Xi Jinping, uh, to discuss the war in Ukraine next week in, in Moscow. Um, what's the latest intelligence on whether the Chinese Communist Party um, has decided whether it will give Russia uh, weapons to pummel Ukraine with? We don't have any change to speak to today, Jake. Uh, we don't believe that they've taken it off the table still, but we also don't see any indication, any confirmation that they're moving in that direction or that they have done, have done that, have sent lethal weapons. Uh, clearly, we don't believe it's in China's best interest to do that. We don't think it's in their interest. It shouldn't be in anybody's interest, quite frankly, uh, to help Mr. Putin continue to slaughter innocent Ukrainians. What's the latest intelligence on whether or not this ICC arrest warrant for Putin might actually have the effect of weakening Putin within the Kremlin as opposed to uh, strengthening him. I haven't seen any intelligence uh, since this announcement this afternoon that would lead us to th those kinds of conclusions. I mean, it just they just now laid this out there publicly, so I just haven't seen anything that would uh, point us in one way or uh, direction or, or another. I, I think it's important to remember, though, you talk about you know weakening. Russia is clearly weaker now than it was a year ago, at least militarily speaking. I mean, they have expended an awful amount uh, of their weapons and capabilities inside this war in Ukraine. They've lost thousands and thousands of soldiers and key losing them every single day. Mr. Putin has achieved exactly none of the strategic objectives he set out to achieve uh, a year ago. And the Ukrainians have now clawed back more than 50 percent of the territory that the Russians first took in those first couple of weeks of the war. So there's no doubt uh, that uh, that Russia is suffering from this war and the Russian people are, too. Today, Slovakia became the second NATO member to announce that they're going to send fighter jets to Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, do you feel comfortable? Does President Biden feel comfortable allowing allies to send these planes to Ukraine, knowing that the U.S. has one of the biggest militaries in the world and is not doing the same. 
It's not about us allowing them, Jake. This is a sovereign decision that Slovakia is making, Poland's making, uh, and we respect that. The whole idea, the whole fight in Ukraine is about sovereignty. It's about independence. It's about a country's uh, ability to make its own decisions, and Slovakia and Poland have that right as well. Uh, we respect those sovereign decisions. Both of these countries have been helpful in supporting Ukraine, and the more we can all support Ukraine, uh, the better that Ukraine will be, and hopefully the faster this war will end. Admiral John Kirby, thanks so much. Appreciate it, sir. You bet. Coming up, everyone might not take a giant floating smelly blob seriously, but this 5,000-mile-wide seaweed blob heading towards Florida is no laughing matter. And new clues in those Idaho College murders investigation. Court documents revealing how police are building a case against the suspect without a murder weapon. In our Earth Matters series today, double trouble facing Florida's coasts, a 5,000-mile, 6-million-ton patchy belt of stinky seaweed is headed to Florida's east coast. It's set to hit at the height of summer, which is prompting fears of millions of dollars of lost revenue for tourist season, potentially, while on the Gulf Coast, the other side of the peninsula, red tides have been washing ashore, producing toxic chemicals, causing respiratory problems for humans killing marine life. CNN's Leila Santiago tags along with a fisherman in Florida who says the seaweed is a blessing and a curse. It's thick in the summertime, builds up and smells terrible. Joe Kaplan captured these images about a week ago. Massive amounts of seaweed washing up at Smathers Beach, a beach he knows well because he walks it several times a week. I was shocked when I saw it that day where it wasn't even spring yet. It's still winter, which is very unusual. And this is about 5,000 miles long. Professor Shalman, who is one of the leading experts on what many have referred to as a massive blob of seaweed heading to Florida's coast. Fair to call it a blob? Nope. No, <laughs> no we can't call it a blob. Okay. I, I would never call that a blob. Okay, okay. why? <laughs> because he's not. Satellite images, he says, show it's not one massive body of seaweed, rather a bunch of patchy clumps traveling from West Africa. It's called the Atlantic Sargassum Belt and is considered a natural phenomenon. Right now, it's twice the width of the U.S., carrying 6 million tons of seaweed and headed to the East Coast. In June of this year, it may turn into 20 million tons. So let me get this straight. This, what we're seeing the last month, is 6 million tons, and it's going to get bigger. Yes. There's no way to stop that. This is nature. It's just like no one can stop a hurricane. Should we be worried about that? Nope. Why? <laughs> Reason is the sargassum is not toxic. But it smells pretty bad, and it's a nuisance for those trying to keep beaches clean to attract tourists. Just a few years ago, here's what it looked like in Mexico. Officials in Monroe County, which includes the Florida Keys, have set aside more than $200,000 to clean and remove sargassum from its beaches. Seaweed is a mixed blessing. Um, we need it. Seaweed is a uh, nursery for all these large pelagic fish. The negative side to that seaweed is if it comes in the concentrations that uh, are believed we're going to see, um, our fishing grounds are going to be completely covered with it. There's almost no point to fishing because we're going to be spending the entire day cleaning weed off our lines. And as the sargassum belt heads toward Florida, 
Another natural phenomenon is already hitting its beaches on the West Coast, red tide. It can be toxic, kill fish, and cause respiratory issues. This year's red tide concerns were enough to cancel at least one major event here in Indian Rocks, where one family visiting told us... As soon as my son and my husband and I got out of our car, we all started coughing. But for spring breakers like this group from Iowa, the concerns of massive amounts of seaweed or red tide were not enough to change vacation plans. I would rather it be red tide than raining every day. Tourists, noting friends back home. They'd be pretty jealous regardless of having a little bit of the the red tide symptoms. They'd be pretty jealous that we're here and they're not. Because the pristine beaches of the Sunshine State are hard to resist for many, despite what may be looming offshore. And Jake, this evening we are on Smathers Beach here in Key West. And if you take a look out there, what you see floating, coming in off the shore, some of that mixed in is in that sargassum. But come on in closer and I'll show you exactly what it looks like. Because this is, uh, it's coming up on high tide and we're actually seeing the most we've seen since we've been here in the last few days. This right here, that is the sargassum that we're talking about. That said, this that's coming in, not a part of that big, massive body that we're seeing somewhere out there. And there's really no way of telling when exactly it will come in because while scientists do have a pretty decent idea of how this is moving since they've only really been tracking it in the uh, tropical Atlantic since 2011 they still can't forecast it they say they need more funding for more research to be able to one day forecast that and when I asked them okay so what advice do you have in terms of the sargassum they say just try to avoid it Jake all right Leila Santiago in Key West thanks so much coming up The laptop saga continues. Now Hunter Biden is suing over the laptop at the center of the House Republican uh, Committee's investigation. Stay with us. In our politics lead, Hunter Biden's legal team has come online in the infamous laptop controversy. The president's son today filed a countersuit against the Delaware computer repair shop owner, who said that Hunter dropped off his laptop and never came back to claim it. Uh, Hunter is accusing Mac Isaac of invading his privacy and wrongfully sharing personal data for personal gain. The laptop was seized by the FBI in 2019. It's unclear whether the contents were relevant to the criminal investigation into Hunter's foreign business dealings. And let's remember, of course, that Hunter would never fully acknowledge whether that laptop actually belonged to him. Here's Hunter Biden in 2021. There could be a laptop out there that was stolen from me. There could be that I was hacked. It could be that it was the, that it was Russian intelligence. It could be that it was stolen from me. So you might be forgiven for assuming that the lawsuit being filed is a confession that this was, in fact, Hunter's laptop. But not so fast. His lawyers found a way to be, well, lawyers. They're writing an, a footnote in the legal filing that says, quote, This is not an admission by Mr. Biden that Mac Isaac or others, in fact, possessed any particular laptop containing electronically stored data belonging to Mr. Biden. Rather, Mr. Biden simply acknowledges that at some point Mac Isaac obtained electronically stored data, some of which belonged to Mr. Biden, unquote. In other words, he's trying to have his laptop and use it too, (laughs) suing for sharing data, much of it sleazy, some possibly illegal, certainly downright disgusting, that he still has not specified or confirmed is actually his. Also in our politics lead, as promised, House Republicans are going full speed ahead with investigations into Hunter Biden's business dealings. In a new memo, Republicans on the Oversight Committee are raising questions about which members of the Biden family may have profited from Hunter's business associations with a 
Chinese company, and Republicans are raising questions about the potential of foreign influence over then-former Vice President, but not yet President Joe Biden. Let's go to CNN's Manu Raju. First, Manu, what does this memo show? Yeah, the House Republicans are looking into three Biden family members who indirectly received about a million dollars from a Chinese energy company back in 2017. The three Bidens include James Biden, the brother of the president, Hunter Biden, as well as a Hallie Biden, who became involved with Hunter Biden after the death of Beau Biden. President Biden's son left her as a widow. Now, the payments came from a Hunter Biden associate named John Robinson Walker. And in this Republican memo, they say after the Robinson Walker LLC account received $3 million from State Energy HK Limited, Biden family members and their company began receiving incremental payments over a period of approximately three months. The recipients of the money included Hallie Biden, companies associated with Hunter Biden and James Biden, and an unknown bank account identified as Biden. Now, some of this information has already been publicized by Senate Republicans, but the new information involves this Hallie Biden payment, which is about $25,000 that came indirectly from this Chinese energy company. The Hunter Biden legal team pushed back about this and they said that he has the right to pursue business ventures as a private citizen. They noted that he is involved. He was working with both James Biden and with Hallie Biden, whom they say he was involved with at the time and they were sharing expenses. And this memo does not allege any criminal wrongdoing by these business dealings with this company, Jake. And uh, we should note, while Oversight Committee Republicans are going after the Bidens, committee Democrats today released documents raising questions about former President Trump and his family. Yeah, that's right. They actually, in fact, say that there were unreported gifts that went that, that the President Trump at the time received uh, money from. They say that between the years of 2017 and 2020, more nearly $300,000 worth of gifts, including a larger-than-life-size painting of him that, that may reside currently at Mar-a-Lago. They say this in their memo. They say the unreported foreign gifts include gifts from President Xi Jinping of China, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, of Saudi Arabia, Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India, and other foreign government officials. They say the Trump administration's failure to disclose more than 100 foreign gifts President Trump and his family received raises new questions about whether these and other gifts may have been used by foreign governments to influence U.S. policy under President Trump. Now, the report does not provide any specific evidence that U.S. policy was, in fact, influenced by the gifts, but Jamie Raskin, who's a top Democrat on the committee, suggests that Perhaps it could violate the Constitution's emoluments clause. Plus, there is federal law that the, called the Foreign Gifts and, and Decorations Act, which prohibits presidents and federal officials from the, get, receiving sizable gifts, including setting a, a threshold at $415. But, Jake, several of these gifts apparently were cost several thousand dollars, including one that was valued at $12,000 in Uzbek silk carpet that the president, former President Trump apparently has. All right, Manu Raju, thanks so much. Let's talk to our August panel uh, right now. And let's, let's just start with the obvious. The reason why a Ukrainian company or a Chinese company would, hunter, would, would hire Hunter Biden, the reason why foreign governments would give, give gifts to the Trump kids, it's all the same reason, right? I mean... Presumably, yeah. presumably. Presumably. I mean, honestly, I think part of the issue is, is first of all, we don't really know um, what the objective was. I mean, because you could sort of make the implication that influence in a general term is what they were after. But what kind of influence is what is, the, is, what is not there? And on top of that, I mean, I think the questions that you're raising about uh, or that not you personally, but 
that Republicans are raising about the Bidens uh, certainly can be raised about Trump's family, specifically uh, 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 Jared Kushner, who worked in the White House and uh, since leaving the White House has engaged in business dealings that touch on things that he did as a White House employee. All of that aside, though, the real issue here is President Biden himself, right? Mm -hmm. Republicans say they want to prove that Biden uh, was aware of, you know, misdeeds that were going on as it relates to his family. They still have not proven that. Uh, and and if they if they are able to prove it, so be it. But so far, the evidence is just not there. And they've even acknowledged that. But, I mean, that's an important point that you just made. Jared Kushner and Ivanka were members of the Trump administration. They were officials in the administration, not mm. just the children of. And again, I think this is, and by the way, we don't even have to go with the Democrats' memo. How about Kellyanne Conway saying that Jared Kushner, in her mind, profited in the billions from his role in the Trump administration? I mean, again, this is such a sign of the hypocrisy of this committee. And all these committees have kind of had a weak sauce sort of start, if you will. It also feels like this is more about taking innuendo and conspiracy theory and creating clickbait and reasons to raise money and reasons to get on Tucker Carlson's show, mm -hmm. not serious investigations into what might have happened. Well, uh, I mean, I think it's unfair to call it a conspiracy theory when these are legitimate financial records that prove that large amount of money was paid to members of the Biden family. They simply want to know what services were provided then to receive that kind of compensation. And also, I think um, while it's fair to you know look into um, Jared Kushner and how he's profiting um, post leaving the White House. You know, he was um, someone who worked in the Trump White House. I think that uh, the question here is that is this a conflict of interest that Biden's uh, family members were receiving these types of um, payments when he was in office as vice president? And what um, the and what the what he knew then when he was vice president, which I will say the laptop appears to prove that he did know some sort of idea of the been, business dealings. There's been no there are proof. text messages or emails saying and alluding to that he knew. And um, one of Hunter Biden's associates came out on record saying that um, Biden was aware of Hunter's business dealings. So and the other thing is, remember, during the first impeachment hearing against uh, Donald Trump, the first impeachment hearing uh, by the House, there was testimony from a, I think, former State Department executive saying that while Biden was vice president, uh, people were very uncomfortable with the fact that uh, that Hunter was being paid by Burisma. And sort of uncomfortable with bringing it up with, with, uh, with Joe Biden uh, as well. You know, I think one of the problems, I think, for Republicans at this point is they have sort of hyped it up at this point without the evidence. The evidence let's, let's, could... let, let me interrupt okay. you for one second. Okay. Let's watch some of yeah. that hype. Here's Oversight Committee yeah. Chairman James Comer. He's been on Fox a lot of times this week talking about this investigation. Take a look. It's as bad as we thought, Maria. It's very concerning. It does show a pattern that uh, the Biden family was receiving money directly from China. It looks like it was influence peddling. And if so, that's illegal. Every American should be concerned about that. This is an it. issue of national security. This just shows how deep the Biden family was involved in this influence peddling scheme. The White House was saying it wasn't true. This is a witch hunt. Uh, the Republicans are just digging. Now we have evidence. A lot of areas of concern here where Joe Biden's actually done things in order for his family to receive this massive amount of money from yeah. our adversaries around the world. Sorry, somebody, one of our producers made a, went to a lot of trouble to make that. Yeah, no, 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 no
continue. Right, he's been hyping a lot with very little evidence. At some point, I think, in, in one of those clips, uh, one of the anchors says, well, it's been five years so far in terms of right. the investigation and looking into this, but so far there's very little evidence. There might be some evidence at some point. They're obviously uh, undertaking these investigations now, but I don't think uh, Comer being out there all the time, you know, using phrases like the Biden crime family, right. uh, you know, it might sound good to folks on the, the far right, but in terms of actually proving a case against Hunter Biden, and not I, there yet. I, I just want to be very clear here. There is no evidence. He may have known what his son's business dealings were, but there is no evidence that that in any way, shape or form impacted American foreign policy with regard to China. They're still looking. Maybe they'll find something and I'll be proven wrong. But after five years, there has been nothing. But that is And they're not holding the Trump kids. If, if that's our new rule, then let's make that the rule. I think for that everybody. should be the standard. I agree. And I think that it is a conflict of interest for members of the family to receive any sort of money from adversaries of ours. I will say, though, it does. It is contrary to what President Biden has said when he says on record that he had no idea of Hunter's business dealings. But in fact, the laptop seems to prove that that might not have been true. I want to uh, one other a bit of political news today. Former President Trump has posted on Facebook for the very first time since early 2021. He was banned and now he's back. He wrote in an all caps letters. I'm back above a short CNN clip of the night he was elected president in 2016. Uh, in the clip, he says, sorry to keep you waiting. Complicated business, complicated. Um, so there you go. Yeah, there you go. I mean, this also is the same day that he's back, allowed back on YouTube as well. Uh, this is about the money. <laughs> they need to raise a lot of money using uh, Facebook, using social media platforms. The Trump campaign the does. The Trump mm-hmm. campaign okay, does. Yeah. And so um, this is a necessary step as he's launching his 2024 campaign. They're really gearing up here for uh, what will be a pitched battle against uh, the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, and they know they need as much money as possible. And this is a huge part of that picture. So they had to, sw- you know, Trump had to swallow his pride a little bit. I think his investors on Truth Social probably wanted him to stay off a little bit longer. But it's about politics. It's about fundraising. And they needed to. Yeah, and it's also about messaging and, and, yeah. and connecting uh, with that base of voters who love him. It's trying to figure out where, you know, he needs to be in terms of this race against presumably Ron DeSantis and all sorts of other people. So in some ways, he's sort of testing out lines on Facebook and all of these other uh, platforms. We've seen him do that in speeches as well. So it's good for him, I think, to, to get back in that arena and really kind of get a sense of what his people want to hear. And we will uh, see whether or not he actually uses it the way that he used to use it. I mean, I thought that tweet today was almost like someone else probably wrote it. Yeah. But if we start seeing Trump actually tweeting the way that he did when he was president, that would be, I think, a little bit of a different story. Sarah, I have to say, uh, I'm not sure about this Ron Sanctimonious nickname that, that, that Donald <laughs> Trump came up with. Like, it, no, I, I don't think it, this doesn't have the sting. Like, yeah. has he lost his mojo on this stuff? But like, It does seem like he's lost his mojo on it quite a bit. I think that his nicknames um, in 2016 were much more effective than Ron D. Santumoni. Little Marco, yeah. Lion Ted. Mm-hmm. And so it does seem like a little bit that he's lost his mojo, but... Um, he definitely is very concerned about Ron DeSantis, and that's why you're kind of seeing him solely attack him and go after him. But perhaps he should consider a new nickname. All right. Well, thanks to all of you. Don't miss Abby Phillip, the great Abby Phillips. She'll be on Inside Politics this Sunday morning at 8 Eastern here on CNN. I'm sure you did not get enough of Abby Phillip just now. So there's more coming up. Still ahead, what we're learning about the Idaho college murders from newly unsealed court documents.
In our national lead, new court documents reveal how police are conducting a very complicated investigation into the man accused of killing four University of Idaho students last year. A knife sheath found at the scene of the crime could be critical to getting justice for the victims, Kaylee Gonclaves and Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal and Ethan Chapin. CNN's uh, Gene Casares joins us now. And Gene, police do not have a murder weapon. So what do these new court documents tell us about how they're trying to build a case against the suspect? Well, it's fascinating because 35 search warrant applications, the returns on them, more information of what they were asking for have been posted to the website. Now, there are still redactions, so there are still mysteries here. But I think first and foremost, it was one week after the murders took place that they got a search warrant for Walmart Incorporated, and they asked them for all of their business records in regard to purchases of a K-Bar sheath and a K-Bar knife. They wanted all documentation whatsoever they could find. And then there is a receipt and return, and it shows that they asked for a particular K-Bar sheath and a K-Bar straight-edged knife which is the knife that K-Bar, which goes back to 1898. This is a very famous company. This is the knife they are known for. And if you remember that probable cause affidavit showed that the wounds they believed were from a straight-edged blade. Now, I spoke with former FBI attorney Steve Kramer today. He said that they believed that he believes they wanted a knife, the one they believed was the missing murder weapon, to see if it matched at that point of time, one week after the murders, the wounds. Now, one week later, they went to K-Bar, the company itself, asking for all of their business records of all of the purchasers of those knives from January 1st of 2022 to the present, which would have been November of 2022. And they go on to ask for surveillance video from a bank that is one mile away from the crime scene of the murders in the hours surrounding when those murders took place. Why they want that surveillance video, we don't know, but they asked for it. They also asked for UPS truck video, the delivery truck, UPS, in Pullman, Washington, where Brian Koberger lived. And that would have been in November surrounding the days of the murders. Why? They have to have probable cause to get each and every warrant, Jake. And they go on all the social media sites, all of the computers, the forensics. They asked for all of that also from every company. And every company that I'm reading complied with those search warrants. All right, Gene Casares with the latest. Thank you so much. Coming up, turn on the flux capacitors. We're going to go back in time. Stay with us. Before we go today, we wanted to rewind the clock a little bit. Tomorrow marks 10 years ago that this happened. Man, it's still got that new set smell. I'm Jake Tapper, and this is The Lead. (laughs) Man, what the hell? Uh, That was our very first day. And now, a decade later, The Lead may look a little different. I may have just a few more gray hairs and glasses, but the show... Our mission remains the same. We're trying to ignore the noise and bring you the facts on the stories that matter the most with the leaders of our country. And while interviews with lawmakers often make the most headlines, sometimes, frankly, it's been talking to ordinary Americans who have extraordinary stories that has had the most impact and meant the most to us. Uh, Trevor Reed, 
and his family shortly after he was released from a Russian prison. Uh, the partner and the mom of Brian Sicknick, that Capitol Hill police officer who died the day after being beaten and pepper sprayed on January 6th. Uh, retired Marine Sergeant Adam Kishleski, uh, who lost two limbs in Iraq and now serves on the Board of Homes for Our Troops, an organization that helps build custom homes for injured veterans and does so much more. These are just some of the people whose stories I've had the, the privilege to share with all of you. And of course, you see me, but behind every show is an amazing team that makes all of this possible from the studio crew, making sure the cameras and mics are ready to the, ready to the, to the control room team, actually executing the show live to the reporters and the editors, the bookers and the producers who help develop questions and ideas and guests for every segment. Thank you. Thanks to all of you. You all make this show possible. And of course, most importantly to you, our viewers, the ones we work hard to serve, thank you. It has been an honor. Thank you. And I look forward to continuing to bringing you the news as long as you'll have me. I'll be back with you this Sunday morning for State of the Union. Arizona Democratic Senator Mark Kelly joins me, plus New Hampshire Republican Governor Chris Sununu. That's at 9 a.m. at noon and noon Eastern Sunday. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. All two hours just sitting right there like a fruit bowl in one of those watermelons. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I will see you on Sunday morning. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.